Jeremiah chapter 17. Father, we are thankful that you have taken us past all the courts into that very place where we have found our salvation and redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is something that has been done and something that has happened for us when Jesus died for our sins and shed his blood for our forgiveness. I'm thankful, Father, for the privilege and the opportunity, Lord, to read and to study your word this evening. To realize, Lord God, that there are things, even as believers in Jesus Christ, that we are to be aware of. How easy it is, Lord, for our hearts to be drawn away from your truth. Especially in the day and time in which we live. How needful we are, Lord, for the outpouring of your spirit, for the continuing of your word to be rightly divided, for your church, Lord, to stand upon truth that is, that is real truth and to live our lives in faith, in trust, and in the hope of Christ's return. This isn't hoping against hope, it is hoping in the truth of your faithfulness and the reliability of your faithfulness. And for this we are ever thankful and ever blessed. Continue, Lord, to teach us and fill us, Lord, with your wisdom and understanding. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Oh, my mountain in the field. I will give as splendor your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. Jeremiah continues to be the mouthpiece of God to a people who are left with less than ten years to see the great devastation that is to come upon them, all because of that sin. But as I began reading this particular passage and and considering it for our time this evening, some questions came to mind that I think are of great importance for us to ponder, consider. How much do we know and understand about the true meaning and necessity of worship? Are we quite aware as to why we're here this evening as it pertains to the practice and expression of worship? And I don't mean to say that which we've just done as far as our praise time, our time of singing unto the Lord. That is something we do as part of our worship. It's not fully what worship is all about. And then are we aware that worship is about a lot more than just those songs that we sing and the raising of our hands to the Lord? These and many more questions could be asked when it comes to honoring and glorifying the King of the universe. And they are questions which we should refresh in our minds 
as we examine our hearts on a daily basis as to our salvation. The Apostle Paul encourages us, actually exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. To some extent, that very same test is being given to the people of Judah. That they are to examine themselves as to where they are with God, as to where they are with their mode of worship. But God was already pointing very strongly against them because they were going to temple, they were bringing sacrifices on, give, on the given days, but then all the rest of the time they were going to their places of pagan worship and worshiping idols and all the things that God abhors. And while we as human beings were created to worship and honor the Lord, we who were created in His image, well, we were created to worship and to honor the Lord since the fall of man, the human heart has had a tendency to worship objects and idols and false gods rather than the living and the true God. And you think about our society and our culture and everything that we have out before us each and every day. And, and the wordings that we see, you know. The things that attract people, the things that, that, uh, that grab uh, the, the attention of millions and millions of people. Let's say, for example, in, on TV, American Idol. Right there, I mean, that's a, that's a big giveaway, isn't it? What is an idol but something to worship? Or how much uh, our society is so focused upon the self, and the improvement of self, and the honoring of self. It's all around us, but self, by the way, can also be worshipped. And down through the ages... The Israelites had given in to the tendencies of their nature and worshipped false gods. They wanted little to do with the Lord because of His demand for righteousness and His strong warning of coming judgment. By the way, let me just interject that that righteousness and that uh, demand for righteousness and that standard for righteousness is still the same. Who can keep it? See, the Jews thought that they could keep it by trying to keep all the law. If Adam and Eve couldn't keep one commandment in the garden, and the children of Israel couldn't keep ten commandments in the wilderness, how were the, the, the Israelites going to keep 613 commandments or laws that they instituted and, and gathered together? To say that when we keep this, then we'll be righteous. But they wanted little to do with the Lord because of that demand for righteousness and a strong warning of coming judgment. And you see, instead of giving their devotion and obedience to the true and living God, who had blessed them, by the way, I don't, I don't think any of us would, would say that they were not blessed, that they weren't running away from God because, God, you haven't blessed us in a long time. You haven't, he gave them everything that they needed. As a matter of fact, if they would only come to Him with a right heart, He would make His presence known. So instead of giving their devotion and obedience to the true and living God who had blessed them, the Jews adopted the idols of the nations around them and, and made these false gods more important than the God of Israel, than the Lord God of Israel. And they were no longer serving Him truly as Lord. And master. Hence the reasons for the questions concerning worship. And how they apply to us even as Christians today. Are we aware that who or what we worship receives our devotion and obedience? 
Are we aware that who or what we worship receives our devotion and obedience? It is very possible that people enter into church once a week, yet spend six days worshiping any number of gods with no devotion for the true and living God. Now most of the Israelites in both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they wanted to live as they desired and fulfill the lust of their own flesh. So they adopted the religions and the false gods of their neighbors and worshipped them at the high places in the hills, building altars to various gods and planting obscene symbols of the goddess Asherah. That is what we see here in verse 2 in just a moment. Look at verses 1 and 2. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Folks, if you stop for a moment, think about what an engraving does. It is something, especially with a diamond, if it is etched in, it is in there for good. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. What is that telling you about their heart? But that it was a heart of stone. And on the horns of your altars, the horns that were on the altars on which they sacrificed, where the blood was supposed to be applied... But you'll notice that it is on the horns of their altars, not on the altar of God. Whatever altars they were offering sacrifices to, it wasn't to the God of Israel. And then it says, while well, their children remember their altars and their wooden images, these were the Asherim, the, the Asherahs, the, uh, the carvings of the goddess Asherah. It was, by the way, a very lewd and licentious symbol. And they carved them out of the trees. And they planted up on the hills. These were the high places. The high places that were in competition to the one high place, which God said, this is where you worship me. That is, on the hill of Judah. Or on the hill of Zion, I should say. In Judah. By the green trees on the high hills. The indictment against Judah for her deeply ingrained sins was permanently written on the people's hearts. Permanently etched. It stood etched there and also figuratively on their most prominent places of worship, the pagan altars throughout the land. Sins engraved on the heart pictures the chief characteristic that marked the inner life of the people. You see, that's the revealing of the heart. On the outside, oh, they wore the proper clothing or they put on the, you know, the phylacteries, the little boxes with the with the Word of God supposedly written a piece of paper and inside the little boxes and wrapped around their arms and around their heads and, and what, you know, they do all of the things on the outside. But on the inside, God was saying, what's in here? And sins were etched in their hearts. The inner life of the people which was indelible sin. And when the Lord had given Israel the covenant at Mount Sinai, what did He do? When He gave them the law on Mount Sinai, He had written it in stone, on tablets of stone. Consider the, the, the comparisons and the contrast here. God's law is written on tablets of stone. Exodus 24:12 and the Lord said to Moses come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written they uh, that you may teach them written on stone etched by God's finger because we're told in Exodus 31 verse 18 when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony tablets of stone written with a finger of God But now what was reliable for the people, 
The Word of God, written with the hand of God, the law of God, written with the finger of God, was no longer reliable for the people. What was reliable for the people now was sin that they had inscribed on tablets of flesh. But in reality, they were tablets of stone. As we'll see later in Jeremiah 31, and I'll get there in just a moment. But rather than blood on the brazen altar in the temple courtyard, confirming and testifying to the people's commitment to him, the Lord saw their sins marking the horns of their pagan altars, as the prophet Amos sarcastically wrote of their sin. Amos in Amos 4 verses 4 and 5 says, Oh, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. This is sarcasm. Because you see, the priests were to call the people to worship, and they would say, come to the sanctuary to worship the Lord. They would call the people to come to worship God. So now Amos is, in his sarcasm, is saying, oh, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. What is leaven a type of in the Scriptures? It's always a type of sin. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. This is what you love. You love your sin more than you love God. And the brazen altar was a place of sacrifice where their sins could be removed, but the horns of their altars had become places of sacrilege where their sins stood recorded. And one commentator said, The people's heart has guilt not only written all over it, but etched into it, engraved beyond erasure. Engraved without the possibility of erasing. In other words, they were engraved permanently. Sin was engraved permanently on their hearts. But in the future, and I think that this is an encouragement, it is a word of of future hope, God had promised to write His law on His people's hearts. In Jeremiah 31, in verses 31 through 34, of course we'll study this in more detail when we get there. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, That is a covenant with all of Israel. All of Israel. One Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for all for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more You see, what a promise that is. And what a hope that was. Because indeed, what we're seeing here in Jeremiah 17 is that their sins were etched upon their hearts. God has to change them. There is hope for salvation. There is hope for redemption for Israel and for for God's people. But until then, their sins were what marked their hearts. And it ought to to give us 
room for praise in our hearts. To thank the Lord that what we could do to ourselves in making ourselves so, uh, so far from God, by placing ourselves so far from God by our own sins, that even those sins can be taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Even what seems so permanent for us does not have to be permanent if people will come to Christ. But until that happens for Israel, their sins were what marked their hearts. This is what God saw. This is what the etchings were. Sin. And then he would remember their sins no more, but now they remain recorded and unforgiven. In verse 2, we are told that the idolatry was so all-encompassing that even children participated in worship at the altars and at the asherah poles. That's, that's pretty daring to have the children participate in worship of idols and especially of perverse pornographic idols. Because that's what the Asherah poles were. But does it seem to tie into things and in the mindset of people in our day and time today? Where we have young kids, children that are being sold into pornographic situations. Or where parents, you know, they say, well, we want to bring up our kids in a, with a very open mind so that they can, you know, make the decisions themselves. A five-year-old make a decision for themselves. Might as well give that five-year-old a checkbook and tell them to go out and get, get a job and start working. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't know that children, unless we bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, I don't know that children really have a childhood other than that. And you look at the trends that you know we see out in the in the world today and kids, you know, the style of clothing and all of that, you know, it just it just it makes you wonder what are people thinking? But listen, because of all of this, the land was defiled. The rich inheritance from the Lord God. That was the land. The rich inheritance from the Lord God had been defiled. And because of their idolatry, their inheritance would be plundered and it would be their own fault. It wasn't God's fault. It wasn't anybody else's fault. It was their fault. And that guilt would be upon their souls. In verses 3 and 4 of Jeremiah 17, it says, Oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. That's a tremendous thought. A fire that would burn forever because of that kind of sin. They would be taken into exile, captivity in Babylon for 70 years. The land itself would be defiled. And we're talking about the fact that, you know, God, God was going to write the law into their hearts, but God's laws should have already been written in their, on their hearts. And we know this because of the scriptures in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, that says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Proverbs 7, verses 1 through 3, My son, keep my words. Treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's something that should have already been. Go back even further to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. The Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Should have already been there. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. 
and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Word of God should have already been written there. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament would talk about this very thing as well, and to the church. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1-3. through Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendations from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ. In other words, a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So it isn't a matter of Old and New Testament, it's a matter of us and God, us and Christ. Do we have His law in our hearts? Do we have His Word in our hearts? Do we have His love in our hearts? Is it written on us? Is it written in us? Is it something that can be seen through our lives? But instead, with Judah, their sin was engraved there. Sin was engraved there. You know, we may forget our sins, but our sins never forget us. You ever thought about that? You know, we may forget our sins, but our sins never forget us. Why? Because they were inscribed on our hearts until we ask the Lord for forgiveness. And then He cleanses our hearts and makes them anew. I think we should be thankful for that. God cleanses our hearts and makes them new. He casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. If God has forgiven us of sin, He doesn't see it again. He doesn't bury the hatchet. In other words, He doesn't bury the head of the hatchet and leave the handle exposed. So at some point in time, He can pick up that handle and hit you on the head with it again. Because that sin has been taken care of. It's been taken care of by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, why do we keep holding on to sins? Why do we keep thinking that somehow we can work those sins off of us? Like people try to work pounds off of their bodies. Well, if I just get on the treadmill, well, if I just start doing nice things, but you always have the guilt on your heart, folks. You need to bring it to God. You need to bring it to the Lord. You know why some people don't bring their sins to the Lord? Because they don't have a personal relationship. Or at least they should have, and they know they should have, but they don't have one because they are not in God's Word. You'll notice that I'm saying they and not you. I'm trying to be nice to you. But maybe you better examine your heart. Why are you carrying the sins that you're carrying? God didn't want you to do it. He said, my son already died for you. My son died for your sins. Why do you keep hanging on to them? I don't even remember them. We remember things more than God does. But it doesn't make us live any better if we hang on to them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after He had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put My law into their hearts. Jeremiah 31, remember we read it. I will put My law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then He adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these or forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Praise the Lord for that. Another part of the problem is that some people, some people think God can forgive everybody else's sins. We can't forgive mine. Well, folks, that, that's just a lie. And you're calling God a liar if you say that God can't forgive your sins. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If he is saying that about his people when they finally repent, how much more us who have experienced the forgiveness of Christ. You know, with all the false gods in our world today, 
money, possessions, fame, success, power, pleasure, achievement, just to name a few. It is important to remember that anything we love and anything we trust more than the true and living God, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is an idol and it must be torn from our hearts. I want to say that again. That anything that we love and trust more than the true and living God, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, anything we love and trust more than Him is an idol and must be torn from our hearts. Because you can't worship God and you can't worship idols. God said it very clearly. There's only one God. That's me. I alone, you are to worship. You don't have to make any graved image, graven images. In essence, not graven images of anything that you would say is God and then bow down to it because I alone am God. So from the sin of idolatry, we move on to the sin of unbelief. And let's look at verses 5 through 8 of Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes. But shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord or whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when he comes. But its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. This passage sets for us the contrast between the wickedness of trusting men and the blessedness of trusting God. Verses 5 and 6 refer to the fact that the leadership in Judah was more prone to trust in their political friends and allies and the arm of flesh instead of trusting and depending on the power of their God. Jeremiah makes the contrast between a a bush in the desert and a fruitful tree planted by the water. That that should be familiar to us because the same thought comes from Psalm chapter 1 or Psalm 1. Psalm 1 verses 3 and 4 where David writes, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. It brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You see, unbelief turns life into a dried up wilderness. Unbelief turns life into a dried up wilderness, while faith turns life into a fruitful orchard. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be fruitful than dried up. Remember that in not too many years, the Babylonians would soon overrun the kingdom of Judah, and what had been a land flowing with milk and honey would now become a literal wasteland. That's going to happen after uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come through there. Jeremiah goes on to talk about the heart of every problem. That is... The problem of the heart. The heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And he touches on that in verse 9. When he says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that, that phrase desperately wicked literally means incurably wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things And desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You know, it's quite interesting to me that the word deceitful here in the Hebrew is the word akob. Akob. Does this sound familiar to you? Well, it's nearly the same word used for the name of Isaac's son. Yaakov. Jacob. What do we know about Jacob? Well, we know that he was named Jacob or Yaakov because he was a supplanter. 
That's what Yaakov means, a supplanter, or more literally, a heel catcher. Even more literally, a deceitful heel catcher. Even before he comes out of his mother's womb, he supplants in the sense that he's holding on to his brother Esau's ankle while being born, trying to pull him back in. Me first. And there were times when he was a pretty deceitful person. So it's interesting that the word is akob. And it's also interesting that in Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, a prophecy that kind of links us all together. It says, The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob. Notice, Yaakov, according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. And it's interesting that deceivers always struggle with God. Because God is not about deceit. God is not about lying. You ever wonder why lying is such a, is such a horrid sin to God? Because God is not a God of deceit. And we can't, you know, we, we're the ones that make, we, we're the ones that try to make sense of, of, of sins and, and, and say, well, you know, there's some, there's some things that aren't so bad and other things that aren't so good. And, well, you know, with, let's take, for instance, lying. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's little lies and sure there's big lies. So the big lies should get punished more than the little lies. But you see, that's us, you know, trying to justify what God says when He says lying. Is an abomination to me. Which means a lie is a lie. Whether it's a little lie or a big lie, a lie is a lie. A man is all full of deceit. Even from the garden. Learned it from that serpent in the tree. There God was, walking in the cool of the day. Where are you, Adam? Or hiding. You know, what, is, what do deceivers do? They always hide. You can't deceive God. There they were, wearing fig leaves. You ever put a fig leaf next to your skin? Man, that's worse than wearing burlap. Hit she, just rough. God says, "Boy, you need you need a, a somebody to, you know, help you with your wardrobe here. Let me give you some sheepskins instead. They're a little softer. It's all the set, deceit, all because of lies. The lie in the garden. Did God really say that?" That, that lie has actually been going through all of, all of uh, man's existence. Did God really say that? Folks, we have to come to grips with the fact that God said all the things that He said. And He meant what He said. Nothing can better describe a heart that is deceitful and incurable in and of itself than this passage in Jeremiah. Who can know this kind of heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know any heart? You know, some people will say, well, if I know my own heart. Well, you don't know your own heart. You really don't. God knows your heart better than you know yourself. But there is a major problem. Because none of us really know our own hearts. The saving grace is that God knows our hearts. The saving grace is that someone knows us and someone who cares about us knows our hearts enough to give us what we need to save us from our own 
selves and our own hearts. He knows and He searches the heart and the mind and knows exactly how to reward each and every person. That's why it says in verse 10, I the Lord search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And if we want to know what our hearts are like, we certainly must read God's Word and let the Spirit of God teach us even through trials and testings. This is how we'll know. God's Word, folks, is a mirror. You begin to read that, you know, we're, we're going to see what we are. God's Word is a mirror. And it's also light. And it's, re, it's going to reveal the dark places in our hearts. But praise God that it does that. Because when we confess our sins before God, we go from darkness into light. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and know my anxieties or my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If there be any wicked way in me, see. And see that there is a, a, a wicked ways in me. Lord, lead me out of those into your, into your everlasting way. By its very nature, the human heart is devious. It is desperately wicked, as we've seen here. It is depraved. It is inwardly corrupt. And this is the very reason that most people trust human wisdom and power rather than the Lord. Now, people choose the wrong way. The path of sin. Because of their own hearts deceiving them. The heart misleads and twists, arousing people to take the wrong path. Indeed, the deceitfulness of the human heart is a cause of all the immorality, of all the lawlessness and all the violence that sweep the earth. And people commit most of their evil deeds because they are convinced either that they are justified in taking certain actions or that they can get some pleasure or gain from the forbidden behavior. Their hearts deceive them into thinking that the forbidden behavior is for a just cause or will make them feel good or, or benefit them in some way. Most people do not understand the depravity of the human heart. And I've said this many times before, but the popular belief is that the human heart is basically good. But this is, a, this is total contrary, or totally contrary, not only to the Word of God, but also to human experience. The heart isn't basically good. When people are honest with themselves, they see that the earth is full of lawlessness, violence, immorality, greed, and selfishness. Still, their hearts deceive them into believing that people are basically honest and upright. People thought that Hitler was honest and upright when he first started. Some people did, not, not many, but some. We all know what his trail left. But God knows the heart. God sent his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to die for the sins of the human race. Christ died because of the deceitfulness of the human heart. Christ died because of the deceitfulness of the human heart. He died to pay the penalty for sin. When people trust Christ, God forgives their sins and counts them righteous, completely perfect. God puts the death of His Son to the account of all who come to Christ for salvation. Christ cures the deceitful hearts and removes their sins from the sight of God. Therefore, in the day of judgment, 
those who have trusted Christ will be counted righteous and receive the reward of living forever in the presence of God. But we have to understand that the heart is deceitful. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's enough to show us the depravity of man. Psalm 14 verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Notice, there is none who does good. There's no room there for the odd person who may be an honest or good person. All turned aside. None does good. Not one. Isaiah 53, though, is our saving grace. That he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. So yes, there is the depravity of the human heart. But there's an answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. The one who had a pure heart. True heart. Righteous heart. Holy heart. Complete heart. He died for the sins of men. So from unbelief now we move on to greed. These are all the sins that are, are, are being cataloged here by Jeremiah. Well, the Lord through Jeremiah of the sins of the people who are going to be judged. Jeremiah 17.11 says, As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. During those turbulent and chaotic days, the rich exploited the poor and only became richer, and the judges did nothing about it. Sometimes that happens today, doesn't it? The rich get richer. This reminds us of the words of the Lord in Jeremiah 6, verse 13, when it says, Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. That's the problem. Greed and covetousness. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And there were plenty of false prophets in those days and plenty of, of hypocritical priests who wouldn't blink an eye if it came to taking somebody's uh, money from them. Priests in Israel do it today, even to this day. I say priests, so, you know, these, these are the guys that are out there, whether they're rabbis or not, you never know. But when you go to the, uh, way, uh, when you go to the Western Wall, or they call it the Wailing Wall, if you ever go there, you know, uh, you've been there, you know that you, you're allowed entrance in. Men have to put on their caps. They can't be with the women. Women are separated from the men. But either way, as the men are going down this, this ramp, down to the wall to pray, there are these guys that are wearing the phylacteries and they've got them all tied up and they want to they want to tie you up in all of these things so that they can get money from you. And they don't tell you that, but they'll they'll take your money. Oh, they, we're going to put these on you. Oh yeah, okay. And these guys, I haven't done it, but you know some guys have gone there and they get them. Okay, that'll be ten bucks, you know. Well, they don't say bucks over there. They're dollars. They like dollars. Yeah, dollars, you know. Oh, you put them on. You have to give us ten dollars. You know, so they're out there to take your money. You know. And thinking that, you know, it's just a matter of some kind of a, a spiritual thing, you know. It's a, it's a great place to go. I mean, you've know, you, you got to go. You've got to see it. And you just have to wave them off. Or push them away. Save your money. Jeremiah was using a, fa- a familiar proverb here in verse 11. A proverb of his day that said, in effect, that it is possible to earn a fortune unjustly, like a partridge that incubates the egg of another bird. And that's what he's talking about. Partridges will go and incubate the eggs of other birds, but such a fortune is fleeting because the adopted baby bird will fly away when it eventually learns that it is different from its foster parent. And in that way, a person who takes from another in such a manner is really being a fool 
And that, uh, that is pretty much the idea of what's, what's being said in verse 11. But in Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, something similar is said. Do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Cease. But look at verse 5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. So when you think that you're incubating, as it were, riches that don't belong to you, you're foolish because eventually once things work their way out, they will leave you. And you'll be foolish. You'll be foolish for that. And lastly, at least for today, we move from greed to forsaking the Lord. But it begins kind of interesting here in verse 12. It says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is a place is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have, written, they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So Jeremiah's solution to sin, being given to us here in verse 12, was to focus on the majesty of God. It was to focus on the majesty of God. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. In other words, the Lord was enthroned in His sanctuary, not in their perverse places of pagan worship. Those who would choose to forsake the hope of Israel would be written in the dust. A reference certainly to their lack of permanence as opposed to being written in the book of life. Because You see, that's the contrast. You, you know, if you're going to continue to forsake God, you're going to be written in the dust. Well, dust doesn't last. A wind will come and blow the dust away. But you'll be written in the dust and not in the book of life where your name will be written permanently. So you see the contrast here. The only hope for His people was the throne or the sanctuary of God, the symbol of His very presence. Only God's presence could deliver His people from this evil world, but the deceitfulness of their hearts caused them to turn away from Him. So they weren't considering the presence of God. They didn't care for the presence of God. I mean, that's sad to say, isn't it? These people who on the outside were going to the temple and you know, making their sacrifices and whatnot, but inside they were so far from God. And consequently, the Lord pronounces judgment on them. All who forsook Him would be put to shame. Their names would not, they would be written in the dust of the earth. They would be doomed to death because they had committed apostasy. They had forsaken the Lord, the only fountain of living water, bringing themselves only to shame and death. Please consider, as we close here tonight, please consider the words of Jesus Christ. Please consider the words of the apostles as we close our study for this evening. But just consider this. The penalty, the price that is paid for forsaking the Word of God and forsaking the Lord of the Word. Jesus said in John 3.36, He said, He who believes in, me, in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Folks, stop there for just a moment and think about that. Think about what Jesus is saying. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. You know, there, there's a segment in, in, in the church, there's a segment of the, 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 the body of Christ, I don't want to say the body of Christ, but Christianity, let's say, Christendom as it were. section of people that, that, that are saying, you know, you know, Jesus you know, wants everybody saved. And, and somehow, eventually, everybody's going to be saved, everybody's going to be in heaven. Jesus can't be that kind of person that he would just, you know, have some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. That's not the way we see Jesus. Let's just let everybody in. And that's the theology of many people today. But folks, these are the words of Christ. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Why? Because the standard of righteousness doesn't change. The standard of God's Word doesn't change. John 8, verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You are of this world, I'm not of this world. 
Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. These are not vain threats. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. We just talked about that. We just talked about those who would just say, you know what? There's a new gospel. You know, this old gospel of you know, saying that there's a heaven, there's a hell. You know, we can't go along those lines anymore. We we have to realize that there's got to be something better. I think I think uh, we just need to have the Jesus of the new age now come and, and show us that really He's going to love everybody. Well, He does love everybody, but He wants to love them into His kingdom because the alternative is not going to be very pleasing for an eternity. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul again, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's the problem. We're, taking, we're turning away from the sound doctrine of God's Word to other things, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. Teachers, uh, you know, scratch the itch that they have. I'm not here to scratch your itch. I'm here to step on your toes. just want to make that clear. But I don't do that, you know, aggressively. I, I want you to know, I want the Word of God to sink into your hearts and your minds. But the Lord is serious about these issues, and you need to get serious about them. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Let us then place our hope. If we're going to place our hope in anything, let's place our hope in the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel that the Scripture says is Jesus himself. I want to close with this passage of Ephesians chapter 2 for a couple of reasons. Because it, it gives us the very heart of God about saving faith that we need to remember and always, always hold dear to our hearts. But it also gives us a reminder of the contrast that we've been talking about. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Folks, there's not one sin that God won't forgive. There is a sin, of course we know, that is an unforgivable sin. We're going to talk about that. Aside from that, there's not one sin committed by any of us in this room that God cannot forgive. And if that sin was written on your heart, engraved on your heart by the coldness and the crudeness of your life, the change comes because God replaces that heart with a living heart. That's how it all works out. If we keep that hard heart and that heart of stone, and never, re, and never choose Christ, and continue to refuse and to reject Christ, then you keep that heart where all your sins are etched. Then when the time comes, payment will come. But the Lord has promised to those who come to my Son, believe that He died on the cross for their sins, who shed His blood for their forgiveness. You confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart 
that he's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. And you shall have a new heart and a new mind. And he shall be your God. And you shall be his forever. Let's pray.